You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I'm honored to sit down with one of my favorite authors, Mike Michalowicz, to talk about how to successfully build a profitable business or side hustle from nothing. Mike is a best-selling author, speaker, and entrepreneur. By his 35th birthday, Mike had built and sold two multi-million dollar businesses before losing it all trying to become an angel investor. You'll hear in the episode that Mike shares what he learned about business building those companies, building his current companies, and also what he learned being a failed angel investor. You'll also hear that I've been on a bit of a Mike Michalowicz kick lately. I've been reading through all of his books and his content. What I really enjoy about Mike's strategy and his concepts is that he talks about profitability. He preaches that profitability is the most important metric for a business and that you do not need to raise millions of dollars from venture capital to start and build a very successful business. Not only does this align with my own personal thoughts, but I think it's also a very important message for new entrepreneurs and side hustlers to hear. I think Mike's concepts can even make you a better stock investor as well. Without further delay, let's jump into today's episode with best-selling author Mike Michalowicz. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Millennial Investing. With me today, I have a very special guest, one of my favorite authors, Mike Michalowicz. Welcome to the show, Mike. Robert, thank you for having me, man. This is going to be fun. Like I said, I'm a big fan of yours. I've been on a bit of a, a Mike Michalowicz kick lately. I've just been reading through all of your content like crazy. But for those listening to the show today, that this is their first time hearing of you, tell us a bit about yourself and your background. So if it's the first time they hear of me, you're not alone. I am a small business author and entrepreneur prior. Actually, I'm still an entrepreneur today. So I started my first business right after college and was in the tech space. had an exit to private equity. I started a second company, which was in computer crime investigation. And I sold that to a Fortune 500. So I knew all the answers to entrepreneurship. I had two exits in a row. I was a millionaire in my early 30s. And then I became an angel investor, probably the worst angel investor of all time. I, I wiped out everything I had made. I just made dumb decisions. And I was chock full of arrogance. I had to show my success by getting the big house, the cars. We leased a house out in Hawaii. And it took me two years and I wiped everything out and had to start anew. And that was uh, around 2008. And when I started over again, I found there's an interesting question. And, and Robert, I'm sure you've heard of this. The question is, if you have all the money in the world, what would you do? It's a great question. The only thing is it presupposes you need all the money in the world to pursue that dream. I found there's a complementary question. When you have no money, what is the vocation you want to do to achieve you know, financial viability, to get back on your feet if you could do any vocation? And when the vocation matches the dream, well, that's a calling. At least that's how I define it. And so I always dreamed of being an author. Since I was restarting again, I said, you know, I want to be an author, but I got, I'm going to make a living doing this. And I went all in on it in 2008 and uh, I've written books ever since. And admittedly, the books I write are an investigation of what I did in business and where I failed and came short and trying to find the right solution or the better solution. That's what I've been doing for the last 12 years. And I also own four businesses, a shareholder in small businesses. I don't, I don't 
actively operate them. There's a president for each one, but I'm a uh, shareholder in all of them. What was the biggest thing you learned when you lost everything by trying to become an angel investor? I thought I was better. Like If you and I, Robert, ran into each other in the street and we were talking, instantly default, particularly if you were and you are an entrepreneur, I'd say, oh, you know, I have so much to teach Robert, but geez, do I have to listen to him because I'm so great. Look at me. It's just total arrogance. So I think that that's the biggest lesson is that there's no value in that. The keep up with the Joneses was very important to me. I wanted to build and sell companies more for the resume and the accolade than, than really the intent behind it. You know, I wanted more money to say I make more money, not because there was value in it beyond that. So those components were big learning lessons. And that really a successful business, as I define it now, is something that is an amplification of who I am. I can really live into the true me and have my business be an expression of that. It's a platform. It's something where I'm so excited every morning to go to work. It's just so cool I get to do this. And when I'm heading home, I'm so excited to go home too. It's, you know, it's not an either or. Because I've been in the perverted other thing. like I can't wait to work. And all I'm going to do is work. That's a disease. That's workaholism. And I'm not saying I'm past that because I enjoy work so much. But it's brought about this balance and this purpose. And it's way more joyful than I ever anticipated. And it's way more profitable too. That's the funniest part. Like when, you, when that's not the primary focus, it just naturally happens to support and sustain kind of the mission that we're on. Yeah. I, I have to say, I think I'm falling into that workaholic camp right now. I love what I do. So I, I spend a lot of time working on it, but I think that's probably where I would fall at this point. So like I said, I'm reading through all your content. I'm picking up that concept that you're talking about and something that I'm learning and working on myself. You sound human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, right? We just, we got to work through it, but we got to work through it. You know, and that's what I think is such a great lesson about just life itself. All the advice exists. Like, if we want to know the best journey, the existence, the evidence is around us. It's in books. Other people can tell us so we can seek out mentors. But part of life's journey is the journey itself. And so we may have heard something, doesn't mean we'll act on it until there's this shift in us, this pain or trauma or joy or something. But something's going to cause a shift to happen. And that's when all the, all the learnings and lessons we heard from the past come to light. It's like, oh, they were right. And I guess that's just the necessary path of, of how we live life. So I was honored to have received an early copy of your book. We were talking about this before the show. Your new book, Fix This Next, that's coming out soon. And it'll actually be out by the time this episode goes live. And we'll definitely talk about the concepts in that book. But before we get there, I want to work our way up to it by discussing some of the topics from your other books that lead up to Fix This Next. So let's start by talking about your book, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. You wrote about that book saying, never started a company before, struggling with little or no cash, have no experience, no baseline to judge your progress against. Well, that's good. You've got a shot at making this work. Yeah. And I love that because I think that fits not only to the audience of the show, but I think it's also one of those things where a lot of people come at side hustles or startups from. So why do these situations give someone a chance? What do you mean by that? Most people would think about this, that their chances are actually less likely because they have those things. And then second, how can someone start under those circumstances? So this has become an underlying principle to most of the books I write is the realization that the lack of a resource, money, network, contacts, the lack of a resource actually inspires more innovative thinking. It's based upon... There's this theory called Parkinson's Law. And, and Parkinson's has nothing to do with Parkinson's disease. This is like a totally different guy. His name was Northcote. <laughs> that was his first name. It's an awesome name. Northcote Parkinson. 
And he's studying human behavior. And his study was predominantly around time. And his argument was that as we're given more time to complete a task, the longer it takes us to complete that task. So if you and I, Robert, are discussing a contract and I say, hey, I'll, I'll give you that contract in like a day. I'll likely take a day to get to you. But if, if you and I have the same conversation around the same agreement, but I say, it'll take a week to get to you, it'll likely take me a full week to complete it. And this is true for time, but it's true for all elements of life. So the more money we have, the more we spend. So when you start a business with money, and I have practical firsthand experience with this, I've done angel raises. I've done the VC roadshows. When, when I got angel funding, I never got VC money. I, I went for a roadshow or a raise, but didn't do it. But I, I did raise uh, angel funds. That money was so easy to blow because all of a sudden there's this big amount of cash in your bank. And it's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I could justify all of it. It's other people's money. So when there was no money, now it's like, okay, we got to make this business work. So the pressure was on. When I didn't have my network of contacts and I was entering a new market, I had to you know, reach out to strangers and sell strangers, which if you can sell strangers, you know you have a good product. When you're trying to sell to your established network, some of them are just trying to be gracious and yeah, give you a sympathy sale. And, and you think your product's valid and strong, and then no one wants it. So there's a lot of advantages to the perceived disadvantages. Yeah. And I love that law that you talk about, Parkinson's law, because it's actually one I've been studying a little bit lately because I fall victim to it all the time. I have these deadlines and I have time to do them ahead of time. A lot of times the tasks, but I wait till the deadline because I know that I have till then. And so I procrastinate. I mean, the simplest way I think to to explain Parkinson's law is just procrastination, right? And so I think it's something that people should really get familiar with, spend some time studying it because it's really valuable and can really help you with your business, your life, just, I mean, really in so many different ways. It plays out in two directions. So it, on one extreme, it's procrastination. I'm given a full week or month to do something and I wait till the last minute. It's funny, if you, you ask people, if they reflect on their college days and say, were, you know, were you the type of person that really did best when you crammed for exams? The vast majority of people say, absolutely, because that is human nature, Parkinson's law, to cram at the end. But the other side of Parkinson's law is not procrastination, it's innovation. So as we're given less time or less resources, we become more focused on maximizing our utilization of those resources and often it's through innovation. So an example is, uh, I use an example of toothpaste just because we can all relate to it, but it plays out in all aspects of business. When you have a brand new tube of toothpaste, it's natural human tendency to use more toothpaste. We put those long beads on the toothbrush. If, if some of it drips off into the sink, it's like, well, that's disgusting. I'm going to use some of my new toothpaste tube. But when that tube is all shriveled up like a prune, now all of a sudden, like one little droplet on one bristle hair is all we needed. So we become scant in its use, but we also become very innovative in the way we can twist and turn, put it in the door jam, squeeze it out, do a double thumb grip to push it out. We start using new ways to keep on extracting toothpaste. And an empty tube of toothpaste can last like some people weeks or not weeks, but for a long period of time. And so what's important is as we constrain the availability of resources, money, network, all those things, we become more innovative in, in stretching what we do have. And that's the essence of a good business. Business that can extract every ounce of value out of its resources continually will beat the competition who is fat and happy and just living off someone else's dollars. So let's talk about that. How can someone who's just getting started, whether it's a full-fledged startup or just a side hustle business, how can we spot the next big wave of consumer demand before it becomes common knowledge? It's timing markets. Because I was looking at when I wrote Surge was, what is the most powerful marketing mechanism? Like, what, What's the one sure fire way to get tons of business time and time again? And I looked at all these different companies. One I settled in on and really investigated deeply was UGG. I, I spent some significant time with Brian Smith and spent a significant amount of time interviewing Brian Smith. And what I found is that 
best the best marketing is to position an offering in front of surging demand. It's it's the classic supply demand curve. If there is low supply, high demand, that low supply will get all the demand because you're the only supplier, which puts you in control for capturing customers very quickly, perhaps increasing margins. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to it. So the technique is put yourself in front of demand. Question, of course, is how do you do it? And what I found is that in any market, there's continual churn and turn. So if you look at a market segment, a niche, it could be a community of people, demographic information. It could be a vertical, like a business industry. So we, we'll just pick, let's pick a business industry because that's probably easy to envision. I, and I did this with accountants, but my, one of my recent businesses. I looked at the accountants and said, well, you know, what, is, what are accountants experiencing now? And what is the coming change? And what's so interesting is you can just Google this stuff. You can type in any community and say, how is this community changing? Or you know, what's the big changes happening in X accounting? It was very clear. It was the rise of artificial intelligence, the sophistication of accounting software, and that the traditional basic core accounting services were less and less necessary. That was the change, that downward pressure. But along with any downward pressure, there's an equal upward result or pressure. And the reaction that's coming back up is that accountants that are shifting to a more consultative model, where they're working with the clients and interpreting what the numbers say and giving strategic direction, there was a rise on this. Accountants were basically coming business coaches, sophisticated ones, because they could understand and interpret the number. So I was like, ah, you know, accountants will want to become business coaches. So after I wrote Profit First, one of my books, I started an organization called Profit First Professionals, specifically with the intent to give accountants a tool, a pathway to become consultative and to, to serve clients in a whole new, very, I want to say the word intimate way, because they know the number so well and can give the customer very specific direction on what to do. And so we caught that market and the, the business exploded without even you know, truly extraordinary or special marketing. I've never run a Facebook ad, none of that stuff. Just take it back. We've tested some Facebook ads now I think about, but we've done very little. It was just on the, the need and being in the right place at the right time by design. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, 
sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. One of these ideas that you've written about that I really like is you talk about how a business plan is a waste of time. Why do you think that is? Do you believe it's one of those things that makes people feel like they're actually being productive and becoming an entrepreneur when in reality, it isn't doing anything for them to move their business forward, like business cards or t-shirts? I think a business plan is most of the content we produce for the for it, most of the research is of no value. So it's insignificant in its big picture. The value in a business plan done right, though, is a vision, clarity on the outcome we want. And what I don't like about the business plan is the projections and the actions we put into it. I can't, I can't remember what general... I think it was Colin Powell, military. And he said that everyone has a plan going to war. But when the first bullet flies, everything's out the window. And that's the idea of business too. There's so many variables. When you open those doors that first day, it's all out the window. You're now in the fight. And you got to act and react to all the changing dynamics around you on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. We got to adjust. So, what goes into a business plan is all the strategic planning. And I'll tell you, one of the most kind of laughable components is the financial plan. Like, you know, we're starting a business and year one, we're going to do like 500,000. Year two, probably 3 million. By year five, we're a billion dollar company. We're the next Amazon. And, uh, and by the way, those are pessimistic numbers. Well, <laughs> We have nothing to base it on. The, the business doesn't exist. If we could predict the financials for a public company just for one day, you would become a billionaire. So if we can't predict it for established companies consistently, you know, what gives us the right to believe we can, we can project three or four years for a company that doesn't exist? And the answer from my experience is we absolutely can't. And yet we believe it, believe it to be true. And we set ourselves up for disappointment when the first year out of the gate, we're lucky to do 25,000 or whatever the number is. So business plans have these arbitrary components that just are not rooted in realism. That's why business plans are such a waste because we put value in them when they're actually of disservice. But there are these components we want to extract. Vision to me is the biggest one. What do we want it to be? Because that's a beacon. I'm not saying it's going to be that, but if we at least know where we want to go, then when we're in the daily fight, we can start making decisions that are consistent with moving us toward that vision. And we, and we also need something that's dynamic and changes with us. You know, a traditional business plan, you write it and it sits on the shelf for years, forever. It collects dust. I talk about in Toilet Paper Entrepreneur a concept of called, called tacking. And tacking is the idea of having a clear outcome. We talked about that vision, serving that or moving toward that goal as best we can over a short period of time, usually three-month increments, taking pause, intentional pause every quarter, and reassess where do we stand, what do we need to do. In fact, April 15th is our, our Q2 meeting, a little bit later in the quarter than, than the quarter starts, but, but we do in our own business. We, we have a full all-hands meeting. All, we're tiny, we're 12, 12 employees. But in, all hands meeting, we all sit down and we contemplate and, and challenge ourselves. What, what do we need to do? Well, what happened last quarter? What competition has rised up or collapsed? And how are things changed? And what do we need to do in this next quarter to most move toward that vision? And every quarter, we just keep on realigning again and again to that vision. And, and to me, that's a living plan, far, far more effective than just the traditional business plan. 
Yeah. And at the beginning of that, when you were talking about going to war and everything, you know, going out the window, that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Mike Tyson. And that's everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And particularly by Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Particularly by him. But just, I mean, really any punch in the mouth is not going to feel great and your plan's no. really going to go out the window. I mean, there's just so many things you said in that, in your response that I think is so good. And I guess my biggest, my biggest issue with business plans is that not that being prepared and having a vision is great and you need that, but it's, it's almost like a waste of time, right? I mean, you spend hours, months, however long it takes to write the business plan and then you go out there and then nobody cares about what you're doing. You have a bad product, you have a bad service, nobody wants it. You wasted all that time. Whereas if you had skipped yeah. a business plan, went out there, tested, realized that there was some demand and people actually want what you're doing. Then you can go back, strategically plan, and start to go forward then. But until you know that people even want what you're doing, I mean, it's kind of a waste of time. And what you're talking about is the power of pre-selling. If I can convince a stranger to depart with money, to open that wallet of theirs and give me money on a concept, well, that means I got something that's persuasive. I got something that's really going to be impactful enough service. There's this, this concept, and I like it. It's called Minimum Viable Product. And it was at least the first time I, I read about it was in Eric Reese's book, Lean Startup. And basically, it's what, what's the smallest, most basic componentry I need to make in my product or service offering that is persuasive enough for someone to open their wallet? Because once, once clients are opening their wallets, then we can pay attention to what they want and enhance our offering to cater to their, their needs. Now, the, the one thing I, I don't like about that concept is the concept of pivoting, of adjusting the offering to always ensure customer happiness. Because I've seen businesses pivot to a point where the business owner does not enjoy the process. And that's a real problem. I believe more in alignment, meaning we got to offer this base viable product or offering. And once the customer is consuming it, we do need to satisfy their needs and adjust accordingly, as long as it's still congruent with our core desires and core competency. As long as those two stay aligned, we'll be the best at it and the customer will be best served. But that's the approach. Sell it before you do it. Yeah, there's a, a gentleman named Nathan Lacka. He wrote a book on how to be a capitalist without any capital. And we had him on the show, I think it was episode three. And he talks about this exact idea. He started a business back back when he was in college and he was selling Facebook pages to businesses before it was super easy to build. And what he did was he said, if I can sell a hundred of these, I believe it was, I forget exactly his price, but he basically needed to sell 70,000 of them in order for him to actually go through and learn how to do this. He didn't even know how to do it. So he was pre-selling everything making sure there's actually demand. And then once he was able to sell that, then he went through, made a business plan, learned how to actually do what he needed to do. And he told them that he'd have a product for them in six months. And if he delivered on it, he'd keep the money. And if he couldn't deliver on it, he'd give them their money back. Yeah, so powerful. Modernization of that is through things like Kickstarter and these other group investing sites, if you will, where they very specifically lay out their visions. Some already have offerings, but some just lay out their vision and make a promise that if, if a certain dollar amount comes in, that's your financial commitment to doing this, we're actually going to deliver on it. And I think it's a fantastic model because now you're judging the only thing that really matters for a business, which is the, the wallets of the customer. And there's a real danger in trusting their words. I have a saying, trust people's wallets, not their words. Because it's socially appropriate to say, that's a cool product. I would definitely buy that. Yeah, I love it. Go for it. And then when it comes to buying times, like, nah, I don't really need that. That's no way can I afford that. You want that feedback first. You want the financial feedback, not the rah-rahs. If you believe in the rah-rahs, you fall victim to it. It can crush a business even before it gets off the ground. 
Yeah, that's such a good point because pretty much everybody will say that they like your product or service. I mean, I've had so many ideas that I've run by people over the years and I don't think I've ever been told that they didn't like my idea and I've come to find out that they were not good ideas. It's really spending that money. You know, that's where I mean, people work hard for their money and they're going to be protective of it. So if they're willing to spend it on your product, then that's that's confirmation for you. So, if we've decided that maybe a traditional business plan isn't super important when you're getting started, what are the three sheets of paper we need to successfully launch, manage, and grow a business? So we, we talked about the tacking strategy. That, that is the core document. And what I mean by that is, where, what's the X in the sand? Where are we going? Or where's the island out in the ocean that we want to head to? And then we throw up the sails on our boat and we start sailing out that way. But we go in this zigzag pattern. No boat goes directly toward its destination. No sailboat. You have to capture the winds of, in this case, the economy. You have to avoid the obstacles and so forth. So you may go in slightly off kilter, but you're moving toward it. Then for a short period, you realign your ship, your boat, and you move in the other direction. And you do this zigzag pattern that inevitably gets you to the island, but you don't go direct. And that's what our business is like too. You know, set that destination, that vision, and then start zigzagging our way there. The other document is really just metric measurements. And it's really keeping our thumb on the pulse of our organization through numbers, empirical data. Actually, I talk about it in my new book, Fix This Next, and the danger of trusting our gut. And yet, business owners constantly say, you know, my gut says I need to sell more, I need to hire that rainmaker, or whatever the gut decision is. But we don't look at the empirical data. And our gut could be a beacon for consideration, but we shouldn't rely on it because we're not neurologically wired into our business. Our gut instinct when it comes to our safety, you're walking down a dark alley and you get the heebie-jeebies, please do turn around and leave because you, harm will come upon you. It's your senses of sight, smell, touch that's triggering your body to feel that sensation. But we're not neurologically wired into our business. So when we have that feeling, oh, you know, we got, we got double prices. But what, what's that based on? Where's the empirical data? So that's the second component. And then the third component, what we use and we have in our offices are mutable laws. These are values that we make very public that become the foundational rules for the entire organization. And something that's an immutable law, it means it cannot be changed. It is, must be adhered to. There is no excuse. And so these rules are for everything. So just to give you an example, one of my rules is I call positivity or death. And what that means to me is that for any situation, including you know the macroeconomic crisis we're experiencing now, we can look at it negatively, neutrally, or positively. And I think if we choose the positive position, that presents opportunity. And I'm not saying be unrealistic. I'm just saying look at the potential, the positive side. Because if we look at the other sides, it starts the downward spiral, the death of an organization. We call positivity or death. But what that also means is every element of our business must be congruent with it. So if you visit my website, you'll see whole orientation is toward positivity and engagement. If you meet with any of our colleagues here, you'll see they are positive people, engaged. If you read our contracts that we negotiate with our clients, it looks at the upside as opposed to only looking at if things go sour. So that, among other immutable laws, is, is the guiding principles for all the business. It establishes a consistent culture. That makes an organization very powerful and very efficient. So that, and it may be a little different than what I wrote in the book, but that has become the third sheet is, is, is adhering to these rules, these laws. Why is it important for us to use a pumpkin plan to grow a business or a side hustle? How do we plant the right seeds, weed out the losers, and nurture the winners? So I'll give you an interesting perspective on that. So The Pumpkin Plan, that was my second book. And what I did was I was studying studying entrepreneurship and I wanted to use this technique called biomimicry. Biomimicry is where you take something in nature and nature spent eons you know, mastering her process. 
And can we take that established process and translate it into business in some capacity? And there's, there's stories of this happening over and over again. Uh, the, the invention of Velcro, which is ubiquitous now, was a, I think it was a Swedish inventor, was out in the woods. He was trying to figure out a way to make things stick together, uh, pull them apart, stick them back together without it getting sticky. That was the goal. And he walked through the woods and he noticed that a burrs were stuck to his dog. He pulled the burr off his dog and put it back to the dog and it stuck right to the dog's fur again. And that became the observation. You looked at it on a microscope and see that nature had figured out this hook and fur system. You, you make hooks, they'll stick to fur. By mimicking that biomimicry, he created Velcro. Well, I was looking at what makes businesses grow organically quickly. And so I started looking at just different methods of, of growth. And I found that in pumpkin farming, and they do this in other areas too, there's a certain faction of farmers that know how to grow these colossal vegetables by just changing the process by a little bit. They're not injecting hormones or steroids or whatever. They found a way to naturally trigger this colossal growth. So it became a little bit of a queer passion for me. It just, just I had to figure this out. And then I translated it to business. Basically, there it's rooted in what's called the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. 20% of your client base will likely yield 80% of your profitability. That 20% of your products will yield 80% of the organization's profitability and, and health. So what we do is we become selective of our client base. We become selective of our offering. We start to narrow in on serving our best clients the best things. And we also have the courage of jettisoning the clients that are no good. And I see this in every organization. You know, Your top clients, they're the ones who love what you do. They'll pay you top dollar, never question. They just adore you. And they're very invested in the successful outcomes. They support the process. But on the polar other end, we have the clients that are never satisfied, complain about everything, threaten to, I'm going to sue you if you don't do this again, or I'm going to go on Yelp and slam you. Those clients can actually pull an organization down, not just financially, but the emotional cost. They're the ones when you're trying to sleep at night, there's roll through your head. like I cannot believe I'm dealing with this person. So the pumpkin plan and what farmers do is you carve out, you cut off the rotten pumpkins. Anything that's allowed to sit on the vine, even momentarily, is taking away nutrients, energy, and attention from the colossal growth. So the pumpkin plan is a strategy of maturing and protecting the strong stuff while jettisoning the weak stuff and make that into a regular discipline. And sure enough, you know, businesses will, will grow as a result, healthfully and quickly. Yeah. What's interesting is it's almost reversal or like a, this dynamic that you cut some of your revenues in the short term, but in the long term, it actually leads to more growth. And so it confuses people because we, humanity, puts a disproportionate significance in the immediate impact of something and a very low amount of significance in the longer term impact. At least that's the natural wiring. We have to be very deliberate of true contemplation of short-term versus long-term considerations. The short-term impact of firing that client is like, well, I'm going to lose revenue. I can't do that. Well, we're looking a day down the road or maybe a month or two. But now if we think about for the long-term, I get rid of this client who, honestly, they may be making revenue. They're not profitable. They'll have no impact on my profit. So that's not a bad thing. But I won't lose profit. In fact, if I get rid of some of the resources I need to support them, maybe I'll make some more money. But if I look down the road even further, I now have the time to start catering to my better clients. Maybe they'll grow further. And I can start soliciting more great clients. And I'm not worrying at night about taking care of this person that I just will never be able to satisfy. So that's the elements we don't naturally look at, yet that's where the real impact for growth is. I can tell a business is very short-term focused when they're, they hit the ceiling, whatever their ceiling is. Can't get past $500,000. Can't get past a million dollars. Whatever the number is, we just are stuck there year in and year out. 
Well, the reason typically becomes this very short-term focus for a short-term reward uh, without the, the long-term consideration. And so we're making these short-term kind of relief measures, but having long-term agony by keeping unfit clients and delivering products that aren't making us you know, serious or significant profit. Why do you think so many people are so concerned with revenue, that revenue number, rather than the profit? Because you talked about how you might see a decline in revenue, but you'll actually see your profits climb when you cut out those. So why do you think people are more vested in the revenue figure than the profit figure? The human ego, I'm part of the problem, hopefully less and less now, but for well into a decade into my first two companies, it was all about top line because I could go to other entrepreneurs, pound my chest and say, I'm doing 1 million or two. And when they were doing less, I felt great. And when then someone would say, well, we're doing 5 million, I'm like, God, I need to do five at least. And when we got, we were on a run for 7 million in one company, I'm like, hey, we're, we're about to do seven. And they're like, oh, I'm doing 10. I'm like, God, I suck. There's this perverted comparison. And it's also perpetuated by the celebrity ship in the entrepreneurial community. They still do it. You walk down any aisle with all those magazines like Inc., Fast Company Magazine. I love those magazines. But on the cover, it's always, look at how fast this company is growing. Look at the numbers in this company, revenue. And revenue becomes this big vanity metric. It's all about the size. And the reality is there's very little value in revenue. It's the relation of revenue to profit. And if I only had to pick one number, profit's it. It's funny. I've been doing this. When, when, when it happens, I'm in a networking event and someone's like, hey, tell me a little about your business. The two most common questions are, tell me you know, the size of your business, which is usually a revenue question, but that's a little uncomfortable. So people will say, how many employees do you have? Which is a softer question, but ask the same thing. If you have two employees, chances are you're like a, Three or four hundred thousand business. If you got fifty employees, chances are you're not. You're probably five million minimal. You're probably seven to ten million, right? So, so people run the numbers. And uh, I used to, you know, play that game, but now I've changed the story. When that comes up, I say, "Hey, let's talk about the health of our businesses." And it's, it's amazing the deer in the headlights look you get at times. I'm like, well, you know, let's talk about the profit. You know, let's talk about the the percentages. And I think that's the numbers we should be quote unquote competing on. I had a friend. He had a two hundred fifty million dollar company. He, he's an extraordinary human. I adore this guy. The company went under. It was a very beautiful, wonderful company from the outside, but they haven't achieved certain fiscal discipline components. And uh, one mistake took him out. Yet he was heralded as the super entrepreneur. You, know, you look at the cover of like uh, Inc. 500, the Inc. 500, not to pick on it, but I'm picking on it. They rate on the, the growth of an organization of revenue year to year. I never see the listing of how many of those companies went out of business or how many companies the owner is surviving check by check at home and, and has lawn furniture as their internal decor because they can't afford anything else. I, I'm really actively trying to change the conversation to how healthy is our business. That's where it needs to be for all of us. I think about things the exact same way. And I think I was shaped that way, a combination of, of you, Mike, but also from Warren Buffett. I mean, he's a value investor and that's kind of how I got my my start in investing. So I've just kind of always been focused on profits, right? I don't really even care about the revenue figure that much or, you know, I just don't even really focus on it. But and that was driven really by Warren Buffett first. And then, yeah. you know, like I said, being on your kick lately, you've just driven that point home so much further. I mean, you see it all the time in public markets, right? Or Uber, Lyft, you know, all these great companies that are doing great in terms of revenue, growing market share, things of that nature, but they just can't turn a profit. We see it all the time and we see it in in private businesses as well as as in uh, you know the public market. So it's one of those things, like you said, I think it's just really ego. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. It's ego because it's perpetuated by the media. And I'm not picking on the media. I'm just saying it's perpetuated there. It's the first number we look at. It's actually, it's so foundational, the concept of revenue, is that the core formula called GAP says it's sales minus expenses equals profit. The very first number we talk about is sales, is revenue. 
So it's, it's always the forefront of our mind. It's necessary, but it's not, it's truly not the only thing. And I dare say it's not even the number one thing. I really believe profit is. Maybe we should flip that equation around and make it profit plus <laughs> expenses equals revenue. Yeah, maybe we should. Someone should write a book about that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So let's assume that we've gone out and done everything we've talked about so far throughout this episode, and now we have a successful and growing startup or side hustle. Unless you're in the accounting profession, which it's likely not one that most people will enjoy. So how does someone manage their cash appropriately? How can they achieve instant, sustainable profitability? What I found, the core premises of it was this, is that most entrepreneurs revert to what I call bank balance accounting. Meaning we have an accounting system, but we're not looking at the P&L and the balance sheet and the cash flow statement. We're surely not tying them in together. We're following a shortcut. Most of us, we log into our bank account. And if we have money, we know we can spend it. If we don't have money, we got an issue. So I call that method of looking at the bank account, making decisions, bank balance accounting. What to do is to channel that behavior to our advantage. Don't try to change it. For eons, our accountants and bookkeepers, financial professionals are saying, please, please don't look at your bank account. 
use the accounting system, but we don't. So it hasn't worked for eons. Why try it? Why is it going to work now? So what I did was with Prop First is set up a system at your bank. You literally set up multiple accounts at your bank with different names associated with the responsibility of that account. Profits one, compensation for the owners another, which is definitely different than profit. Profit's a reward for being a shareholder in a business. Owner's comp is a uh, salary for being an owner operator. Tax reservation. So, you, so when your tax bill comes, which is the biggest bill associated with operating a business that is that entrepreneurs are least prepared for, inevitably is taxes. Tax time rolls around, and we're like, "What? I owe how much?" Well, your business, regardless of the formation of your business, your business can pay your tax. And then there's one, of course, for the operations of the business itself. And so, what happens is money flows into the business. We then carve the money up into these different accounts before we spend a dime. And now you know very quickly before you do anything how much money. You've available for profit. You've taken that money first. You've taken your profit first. You then and there's you know there's advanced techniques here, but you hide that money away. You have salary reserved. That's your owner's comp. That's what pays you. Taxes are reserved. You you hide those away until the taxes are due, and then you you see what's left for operating expenses. And say a thousand dollar deposit comes in. We used to think we had a thousand dollars to run our business. Well, that's totally not true now. When you carve this money up, maybe it's four hundred dollars in operating expenses, and the rest has its other responsibilities. It's profit first has become a uh, cash management tool that drives and enforces profit, which is the number one number in my eyes for a business consistently. It's always the priority. What if the startup or side hustle is just starting out and doesn't really have much in terms of revenue? Can this system not be used until substantial revenue is being generated? No, it's actually it's actually better to start the system the earlier the business is moving along. So if you have no no revenue coming in, get the system set up. That first dollar comes in because it's a percentage based system. You can take the five percent or whatever it is to profit. You can take the twenty percent to pay yourself and so forth. The beautiful thing is a brand new business doesn't quote unquote know better. You ha- you don't have the bad habits of spending every penny that comes in. So if you set this from the get go as your business develops, it will drive more and more profitability. And again, I'm saying this from experience. Every business I start now, I start bootstrap. I don't put a single penny in it. Business has to prove itself, has to sell its way into existence. No raising funds, none of that stuff. And we implement profit first. And we set significant profit objectives right from the get-go. And so the business then has to develop itself around driving some serious profit. As, as, as a result, we build these very lean, but high value, meaning they deliver high value to clients, organizations, because... That's what we're forced to do. You know, if the day you're born, you're right-handed and, and you tie your hand behind your back and you have to use your left, you're going to get pretty good at using your left hand. I mean, it sounds like torture tying your right hand behind your back all the time, but you'll get pretty efficient at it. If a business goes in and from day one, you're committing to taking 20 or 30% profit, period, no matter what, your business is going to figure out how to make it happen. It's Parkinson's law. So let's fast forward again. And we now have a successful startup or side hustle that's doing well profitable and we have the cash management piece under control. But now we're stuck because we're the main component of the business and it can't really run without us. How do we become unstuck? How can we get our startup or side hustle to continue on without us? What I was discovering is that most small businesses, the business owner is so entrenched in the business that business cannot exist without the owner. There's this perverted relationship, almost like almost like Siamese twins or conjoined twins. And that as the business goes, so is the business owner. And so is, as the business owner, so goes the business. They're, they're locked step. When you first start your business, it is just you. I mean, you got to be doing the work very quickly. Once you start getting some revenue stream, and we got to start peeling you out right away. And so what we do is we there's a, this method of finding what's called the QBR, stands for the Queen B role. There's a core competency within your business that must sustain. And as a small business owner, often 
we're the ones doing it in the beginning. But all of the surrounding work, whatever that is, that administrivia or other necessary but distracting stuff, we outsource as fast as we can. And as the business gets bigger, even the QBR, that core competency within the organization, we remove ourselves from the heart of the company so others can do the work. The ultimate acid test or technique to do this is once your business has established to some degree, take a four-week vacation, four consecutive weeks, full digital and physical disconnect from the office, and the business has to run on its own. And I've been doing this now year in and year out. Ever since I started studying and researching this book and preparing it, I take four consecutive weeks off from work. And what happens is by doing that, your business must find a way to operate on its own. And when I say, it's, you know, it's not like your business magically does this. You, the business owner, will have to put the structure in place. So I had to put other people in to, to carry on the core competencies to continue their, our revenue and grow it even in my absence. And the beautiful thing is once you're free of the business in its day-to-day, you as a business owner have the right to reinsert yourself in the, the, the way you want to, to do what gives you joy. And for me, it's being a spokesperson. Like what we're doing right now, this is stuff I love to do. I like to write books. I like to talk. So that's what I'm going to do. But the rest of the business, the president of our organization manages and, and my, my colleagues. And then the final component I found is even as you move further along, the linchpin employees need to choose four-week vacation. So the president of our company, her name is Kelsey, took off for four, actually eight weeks so we could prove the business could run healthily in her absence. She had to build redundancy for herself. And uh, now we're doing it for the other employees too. And it builds this powerful organization. And people are benefiting because they're getting vacation time like you wouldn't anywhere else. But really, the real benefactor is the business itself because that structure is put in place to protect the company. Unfortunately, the issue that we just talked about, us being stuck in our business or side hustle as the main component is only one of the issues we're going to face. We also have stagnating sales, unhappy customers, or just any of the other issues that entrepreneurs and side hustlers find themselves facing. What do we fix first? How do we know where to start? This is what my passion project is right now. And that's why I wrote Fix This Next. I I surveyed my readers and I'm, I'm blessed to have quite a few people respond to me nowadays. I had about seven or 800 people respond. I sent out an email and said, what's the biggest challenge you're having? And so seven or 800 plus folks emailed back and it was all over the place. And I had asked the same set of people only a month prior what your prior challenge is. And they all answered. And then we did a comparative analysis and everyone's challenges had shifted or changed. Some were stuck in the same challenge over and over. What I found is effectively, entrepreneurs don't know what their challenge is. So the thesis of Fix This Next became the biggest challenge business owners have is knowing what their biggest challenge is, is pinpointing it. So I figured out we need a tool to identify what to work on in our business. And just as I shared earlier, there is this hierarchy that the business has, but we are instead trusting our gut. We're saying, well, my gut says I need more sales. My gut needs profit. But we need this empirical data. So I created what's called the business hierarchy of needs and Fix This Next. And I found that foundationally, the DNA for all businesses is the same. Your business, my business, really, when you go back to the skin, it really is not that different. When we look at a business, foundationally, every business needs sales. You need the creation of cash, the oxygen for an organization. But immediately, once there's some degree of sustainable sales, we have to look at the creation of stability for the organization, which is profit. If a business just focuses on sales alone, you're creating cash, which is wonderful, but you're not retaining it. It's a very unstable organization. You could hit the 250 million mark like my friend did and, and have a great demise. So there's got to be this balance. So Profit is the creation of stability for an organization. And then once that is achieved, then we need order, which is the creation of overall efficiency. And then the higher levels are transformation, which is through impact, where we're serving clients beyond transactions, we're transforming. The highest level is legacy, which is the creation of permanence, where a business can live into perpetuity, absence the leadership, the founders. It's designed to live on forever. 
these these work in a hierarchical structure. Like you can't just go in your business and say, you know, I got to start working on impact. I'm going to change the world. I mean, you could, but the business will collapse because it has no source of cash, no stability. So we always start at the base and say, do we have sustainable sales here? If the answer is no, we got a sales challenge. Let's just start working on that. But once you have some degree of predictable sales, then we say, do we have enough sales to support a degree of stability, some profit? And if you have enough sales to have some profit, then you actually have a profit challenge. We got to make sure that profit shored up. Once profit shored up, we start at sales again and say, do we need more sales to support more profit and more profit efficiencies? Or are we really focusing now on overall efficiency of the organization, which is the order level? This hierarchy kind of looks like Maslow's hierarchy. It's a triangle. We cycle through these different levels and ask ourselves these questions. And we always try to find where's the biggest need at the most foundational level, shore that up. We start building the structure up again. And that's what we talk about in Fix This Next. And that's how you find what to fix next. Mike, thanks for coming on the show today, sharing all of your insight with me and the audience. I know I really enjoyed the conversation, so Mm -hmm. I'm sure the audience is going to as well. Where can those listening to the show today go to learn more about you and connect with you? I'll give you two spots. That's okay. With Fix This Next specifically, I think it's become the starting point of building a healthy business, regardless if you're brand new or established. But you can go to fixthisnext.com. And what's waiting for you there is an evaluation. Just click on Take the Evaluation. It's totally free. And it'll ask you a series of questions and will pinpoint exactly what you need to work on your business right now. And there's like no download or anything. You just fill in the information, answer the questions, and it spits up on the screen. This is what we got to work on. So that might be a good starting point. And then if you want to go into the Mike Michalowicz world, you can go to MikeMichalowicz.com, which no one can spell. So go to MikeMotorbike.com. That's my uh, nickname from high school. So go to MikeMotorbike, as in Motorcycle.com. And all my books are there. There's free chapter downloads. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. You can get those articles. I have my own podcast too called Entrepreneurship Elevated. It all resides at MikeMotorbike.com. I'll be sure to put links to all of those different resources in the show notes. I'll also put links to all of Mike's books that he's written in the show notes. You guys can go check that out. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun, Robert. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.